For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Oklahomans are voting on five state questions on November 6th, and over the next few weeks, I, I want to get your thoughts on these measures. Uh, this week, we're looking at state question 794, also known as Marcy's Law. It's a constitutional amendment from lawmakers guaranteeing certain rights to crime victims. These include opportunities for a victim to be heard during court proceedings, speedy resolution of a case, the right to talk to prosecutors, and the right to refuse interviews with defense attorneys. Ryan, what do you think of this measure? I think it's well-intentioned. I think that uh, crime victims and crime survivors are a very sympathetic group, and, and rightly so. And um, you know, I suspect that at the ballot box, voters are going to see this as, as an effort to level a playing field. What I would ask folks is that when they're thinking about who's on that other side of the playing field here, is that this well-intentioned ballot measure says, uh, you, you hear the rhetoric is that uh, crime survivors should at least have the same rights as uh, the people who perpetrate crimes. And often they'll go to the most heinous, you know, rape or murder. But we have to remember that a bedrock principle in the United States criminal justice system is that you are innocent until proven guilty. You are presumed innocent. And so the individuals that we're talking about here are the accused. And so they they are also innocent at this point. You know, we've moved away from this idea that until a jury or a judge says you're guilty in the United States and, and especially in Oklahoma, it's really at the point that your mugshot is taken, you know, that society cast guilt upon you. Right now we have thousands and thousands and thousands of Oklahomans wasting away in county jails before they've ever been adjudicated of guilt whatsoever. The and the unintended consequences of this could possibly infringe upon the constitutional rights of the accused, but it can also create an enormous amount, an enormous uh, expenditure obligation on behalf of the courts that are already deeply, deeply underwater with their budgets. And you know, even aspects of the court. I mean, the Oklahoma County Public Defender's Office earlier this week condemned for asbestos, uh, and uh, and they've they're moving their offices. I mean, we've got great disparities in our judicial system. This, I think, will just add to that. Neva, well, I think uh, I think the arguments that you just uh, articulated, Ryan, are the ones that are out there on the uh, on the opposing side. But overwhelmingly, I think what we're seeing is this this particular type of law is uh, one that is being uh, really uh, advocated across the country. I mean, we see six states uh, this year that have it on the ballot. Uh, California passed it several years ago, uh, Illinois, other other states. So it seems it seems at least at this point that, um, you know, that the argument of, of being something that uh, is very popular with the voters, I mean, it's interesting to me that it really is the product of one single individual, a man who uh, uh, had a sister who was murdered that really kind of launched this campaign nationally. He's funding it nationally. He's a uh, basically a 59-year-old billionaire uh, uh, tech uh, uh, person who made a lot of money and now has really focused his time and energy in Oklahoma. From the last uh, ethics report I saw, the $900,000, $900,100 that had been put mm -hmm. forward in this campaign, 900000 of it was his money. So um, this is, I think this is when you look at it and kind of step back and take another component of the over 
you know, kind of the overarching look. This is a classic example of someone who uh, sees and wants to uh, have some change and is willing to put money behind it, personal money behind it, and uh, make it a national movement. And I think that's uh, what we're seeing here in Oklahoma this year. When I see things like speedy resolution of a case and the right to refuse interviews with defense attorneys, uh, that makes me question the fact that that's the whole system of what we're, we're, we're based on is, is a, 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 crim, a, a person who's charged with a crime has a chance to defend himself in court in a time. And to confront that, their accusers. Right. And, and to make sure that all the facts bear out. And there is a subpoena exception in there where a criminal defendant could subpoena the testimony of a crime survivor or crime victim. Uh, but, you know, that, that seems to be an extraordinary step that, that is unnecessary in, in many instances. And I think that when we, when we look at what the Oklahoma Constitution and Oklahoma laws already provide in terms of rights to crime survivors and crime victims, um, there are a large number of overlap with what we're seeing with Marcy's Law. And that's, you know, so I, it's this national movement, and I, I really think that the, the intent behind this is, 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 is good intentions. And the individual out of California that's driving this, it came, you know, they had to see, a, at that time, the accused, he wasn't yet convicted, but the accused at a grocery store uh, shortly after uh, their, uh, their sibling suffered a murder in California. And so I, that boilerplate language that we're seeing around the country, I don't necessarily, I think that it could create more problems in Oklahoma than it could actually solve. And that's what I want to get to is last week we talked about uh, the uh, optometrist, which would change the Constitution. If this is put in the Constitution, then that's it. You can't change it at all. And it's that's right. kind of boilerplate for every state's got its own Constitution. And I, and I think that will be the interesting thing in the uh, closing weeks of this election season is do we see some real give and take? Because when you look at kind of the, the, way, the way it stacks up right now, you have this overwhelming um, look at all of these folks that have come out supporting supporting this and you see very little you know very little kind of uh composite uh, opposition to it that's really articulating some of the points that have just been mentioned. So I think until those points are raised in a, in a, in a wider context where people kind of pause and say, okay, is it, just a, is it just a victim's rights bill or are there more issues here that not only are issues now but could be litigated down the road, which we saw in other states. I mean, there uh, one state, I think Montana passed it and then it was overturned mm-hmm. because it was the single, uh, the, the argument being that there were multiple, you know, multiple issues. Uh, issues sure. uh, yeah. involved and they and they in fact struck it down so you know it it, it does i mean one of the arguments uh, that is being advanced although i don't think it's been widespread is the fact that this this there could be some question uh, down the road and some litigation so um again i think it it, it probably speaks also to the issue with state questions where uh, i think most folks don't really start to key in and pay attention until very close to the end they start to they see the they see the information out there i will say that almost without exception all of these state questions this year, we are seeing more opportunity for folks to get information on both sides of the mm-hmm. argument, on, on you know, out there on websites and and with information that's being distributed, which I think is very helpful. Well, well, and, there's only five, <laughs> and you know, and I think that the, the visceral reaction that folks have to this, you know, that you know, this the, the very basic platform of the campaign for Marcy's Law is crime victims should have the same amount of rights as murderers, and. 
Yeah, I think that you're going to see you know bri- wide bipartisan support for this. It's probably going to pass. I would just really encourage people uh, to really consider the fact that these individuals that are going through the criminal justice system are accused. The people that are we have a lot of folks that are sitting in county jails right now, incarcerated, their freedoms taken away, they're away from their families, their jobs, their communities. They haven't been found guilty of anything. And a bedrock principle of our criminal justice system that everyone ought to agree on is that you are innocent until proven guilty. Very quickly, do you think this will be challenged if this goes? I think that passes? I think that there's a potential for a challenge. I think that the, the biggest obstacle to implementation here is going to be funding. You know, where's the money going to come from to make, make all of these changes happen? The two major candidates for governor took the stage Monday night for their first debate in preparation for the November general election. Democrat Drew Edmondson and Republican Kevin Stitt talked about a variety of topics, including education, health care, criminal justice. Neva, was there anything which stood out to you in this event? Not a lot. And really, I, I would characterize it more as an hour long conversation than a debate. It, it really didn't uh, elicit very much contrast. I think uh, the the questions were the very fairly obvious questions that come out at this point in the campaign. So I think with the uh, with the two, the forum and the debate, as I understand being being the way it will be billed uh, coming up later in October, uh, that may be that may be both because of time, kind of the timing in the campaign, as well as maybe the format may lend to a little stronger exchange between the candidates. But basically, both were trying to carve out, you know, who they are versus who they see the the opponent kind of the, the the biggest contrast points uh, you know both both directions I didn't I didn't see in in my estimation I think uh, uh, neither scored any you know big points or there were there any big surprises but I do think that uh, uh, I do think that we may see that change as we get closer to the election Ryan you know I think uh, Drew Edmondson did a, a really good job of contrasting himself with the current administration and doing uh, and in doing so tied stead to what we've seen out of, the, out of the Republican legislature made him seem even out of step with that legislature and out of step with Governor Fallon. I mean, uh, Kevin Stead is talking about we need a more sustainable revenue stream. We need a more sustainable revenue model, but he's got no absolutely no plan for that. You know, he talks about the fact that we've got a billion dollars in new revenue coming in during this next legislative session that we can invest in teachers uh, and education. Well, 400 million of that he said that he would have vetoed and it's really not new revenue it's revenue that we've replaced because other revenues have lagged in the past and with drew edmondson he's really doubled down on the idea that uh we have to have not only a we don't only, we don't only have to protect protect these new revenues uh, but we have to add new revenue to that and so it's interesting that he's walking into this election cycle not shying away from the idea of that we need some increased taxes, that the wealthier Oklahomans need to pay more of their fair share, that the oil and gas community needs to pay more of their fair share, and that until we do that, we're going to be in a fiscal crisis in the state of Oklahoma, and if the legislature won't do it, he would use his capital as governor, his political capital as governor, to take those questions direct to the people. Um, for Kevin Stitt to be, to me, that's that's the more radical position to take in this, and you've got Kevin Stitt who's saying that he's the outsider and the not the politician, but a lot of his rhetoric sounds just canned right out of Republican talking points for the last two or three years. So it's it's very generic Republican candidate right now that Kevin Stitt's trying to become for the general election. And there were some times when Chris Castile, the moderator for that debate, kind of had to hold Kevin Stitt and say, well, you, you need to answer the question now, which I a lot of credit I've heard from goes to Chris Castile for his 
keeping the politicians on task. Yeah, I think there was there there definitely seemed to be a very concerted effort on uh, on the part of the moderator to try to to try to keep the focus on specifics. Uh, and and let's face it, I mean in these in these kind of uh, dialogues and back and forth, we aren't going to see a lot of uh, a lot of specifics most of the time. And when you do, I mean the very points that uh, Ryan makes, I mean when you start talking about the willingness to raise taxes, go after, you know, certain industries and 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 do the things that uh, that are kind of being outlined. I mean, it does start to separate the water and 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 does kind of build for a political landscape that uh, you know has some volatility to it. I mean, bottom line. I mean, when you you still look at the overall makeup of of this election season, uh, you know, I think the Republicans still see themselves in a very good position to uh, uh, to to capture a lot of uh, what Oklahomans uh, see and feel and and want, even though they. Have have frustrations, they have issues, they know that there are big problems. I think to see this seismic shift another direction is going to take a lot more than what we've seen out of the campaigns on both sides so far. I think in rural Oklahoma, we got a preview. I think Medicaid expansion is going to be a just the uh, the bulwark of the Edmondson campaign when you're talking about the closure of rural hospitals. Rural hospitals are on the ropes of closure right now. Kevin Stead has said just he does not believe that he uh, he does not believe in Medicaid expansion. He sees it as a as a handout that we're coddling uh, sick Oklahomans and need access to health care. And I think Drew Edmondson sees it as a lifeline to these rural communities in particular to make sure that Oklahomans aren't left in the lurch without any sort of option for medical care for sometimes hundreds of miles around. That's going to in rural Oklahoma. That's going to be a real issue, and it's going to be. I don't think that. Edmondson picks up rural Oklahoma with that. He's not going to win a lot of these rural counties, but I think he's he could potentially cut into Stitt's margin there enough that this could be a very competitive race and come down to Oklahoma. And I think the question County. on that issue will be whether whether it is how it's framed versus how the public sees it. And if it's about raising taxes or not raising their taxes, I mean, I think historically what we've seen in Oklahoma is that there's not much of an appetite, you know, in general elections typically for folks to want to say that uh, that's the direction that they want to go overall the oklahoma ethics commission loses its battle in the state's highest court over more funding from lawmakers the agency contends the legislature isn't funding it enough to perform its duties but in a five to four ruling the state supreme court finds the commission isn't unique in regard to other state agencies and must follow budgetary guidelines like everyone else ryan did this surprise you well, you know, I think that it was a political question to begin with, and you know, courts just typically don't want to weigh in on matters that involve uh, contest between individual branches of government. I mean, they're going to step in and protect separation of powers, but the, the Ethics Commission is, is its own constitutional entity. And what, what they're saying is that they have to, that they are subject to the same budgetary laws as every other agency out there, constitutional or not. I think if the legislature came in and zeroed them out, you know, that may be a, an, that may be a violation of the separation of powers uh, uh, clause in our state constitution. But as it is, you know, the, the court, and we, we mentioned this back whenever the, the lawsuit was originally filed, was that the court was going to have to say, you know, what are the specific particular constitutional mandates of the Ethics Commission, and can they get this done with this amount of funding? It doesn't matter whether they can get it done great or if they can you know, go over and above or provide all these different Did services, but can they give them something? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was it was pretty clear to everybody that was looking at this that the legislature had an axe to grind with the Ethics Commission. Not only did they cut their budget, uh, or not only did 
they give them a fraction, a small fraction of what they'd requested. They took money out of their own revolving fund to pay for that budget so that the, the, the maintenance that the uh, Ethics Commission has to be able to tap into that revolving fund for one-time infrastructure expenditures, whatever, that's just gone. They took that money out of there. And so it was, it was retribution. Now, the court will operate oftentimes in a legal fiction and pretend that these things don't happen or, if, or acknowledge them but not allow them to go into their consideration. Right. So, right. Or take it off the facts. Take basically. it off the facts and say, we're not going to read into their motives here. And, and that's, yeah, and then I guess that's what the state basically argued was that every other one, every, all the other agencies have taken cuts. So, you know, you, and, you have to do. And, and I think Ryan's right. This is a political football. I mean, both both the commission and the legislature have sparred back and forth. I mean, you've had, you've had the pro tem call the agency sure. a rogue agency. <laughs> you've had the, you know, you've had the chairman of the uh, of the commission basically say that he's a Paul because, you know, all, all they are are mad about the fact that we've kind of honed in and knuckled down on them and that they don't like that kind of scrutiny. Uh, and somewhere in between is the real mix in this deal. And I think uh, I think the public uh, wants the Ethics Commission. I think the fact that we have kind of real-time uh, access now to information in terms of who who is out, uh, who is, uh, um, you know, giving to campaigns, how the campaigns are spending their money, who are the registered lobbyists, uh, who are they representing, I mean, on and on. I mean, those things are clearly there in a fashion that we've, uh, much better than we've ever seen before. But, but but the but the notion that you can as an agency whatever the makeup just go in and uh, go to war with the legislature when they have the purse strings i mean is a, is fairly foolish idea i mean uh, they have $700,000 they wanted 2.5 that's a pretty big 2.5 million that's a pretty big gap right there in terms of uh, you know what they think they need to operate their their budget so hopefully in the future uh, there can be some kind of toning down and better um, you know kind of better work working atmosphere uh, between the Ethics Commission and the legislature because both of them are going to be around. They need to find a better way to coexist. Yeah, and it, it seems like a lot of money. They're saying, well, we need $2.5 million. They only got $700 million. The, the ed- Education, the Department of Corrections, they all ask for, sure, I think, sure. I think what the DOC asked for $2 billion and sure, that's, you sure. know, they got like, sure. you know, not and, that. And and I think and I think then the question is, I mean, what uh, you know, where is the expansion? Is it necessary? What what What's really the motivation behind it? And those are a lot of the questions that I think will continue to come up as they have to uh, come in and talk about their budget in, in the upcoming session and uh, and explain, uh, you know, really what uh, what they want to do in the future. Well, and I, and I think that the legislature fully funding the Ethics Commission and, and not playing these games, it's important for the legislature. If, if people want to have confidence that their legislature is, is uh, open and transparent, that we're doing everything we can to uh, disincentivize corruption and cap- catch it whenever it happens, then you need to have a, a fully functional, very robust Ethics Commission that can operate as this neutral, independent party out there. The, the more that... Um, that the public can have a sense that this is an, a fully functioning operational agency, I think that it lends itself to the legitimacy of the legislature. Well, staying on the Ethics Commission, the agency is now facing a lawsuit from the Institute for Justice out of Arlington, Virginia, 
over the commission's rules on gifts. The Institute says the strict rules to give gifts of $10 or less are unconstitutional and restrict free speech. Neva, this just seems to be more bad news for commissioners. Well, again, I think uh, where's the give and take in this? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've now it, we've gone to extremes. I mean, we're into this. Uh, uh, let's don't give any gift. We can't give a $10 book. We can't give a, a, a $10, you know, a $15 box of candy. We can't do these things. And if we do them, the rules are we can do them one time, uh, you know, a year. Um, and there's, again, it's this give and take of where are the boundaries. I mean, no one wants to see corruption uh, outright, uh, just uh, an attempt to uh, kind of wholesale buy, you know, buy folks at the legislature. The flip side of that is I think that we have a legislature and we have an environment now where uh, folks pretty well police themselves. You have professional lobbyists, professional uh, associations and their executive directors and others who are out there on a regular basis dealing with the legislature and they know who the bad actors are and, you know, and they get caught. I mean, so I think that uh, the notion that somehow we're just going to squeeze down and and become uh, almost ridiculous in terms of what someone uh, can do, I think, I think those things are the things that uh, need to be looked at. And this $10 gift, uh, the the book, I think, is a classic illustration. Well, it was $18. It was, oh, you know, 18. That, okay. that $8, Neva. Okay, that That's, $8 really I mean, that threw gets it you over. A vote. Yeah, well, that, gets you. That, that changes <laughs> well, my that mind. Was, it, was, it was an $18 book, <laughs> yeah. but the $10 limit. So, yeah, right, so yeah, they right, couldn't right. give an $18 That's gift right, because there's right. a $10 and, limit. And, but and, could they have gotten a discounted book? Could the $18 book have been discounted to $10? That would have been in kind. Well, and Eva, you mentioned you mentioned like once a year. And it's, it's you know, so you can't give it for somebody's birth you can't give a gift for somebody's birthday but you can give for a wedding or an election celebration or you know, something and that so, was the contrast and that, that was up made, to hundred dollars you know, what's, yeah, the, difference, yeah, and, what's and the difference between a hundred dollar book one time if you are giving it to someone yeah. who just got elected to office versus a ten dollar paperweight to someone uh, you know because you just appreciate the fact that uh, you know that they're there and have an open door and and are uh, being a good legislator and, and i see this as a, as a as a matter of free speech i see it as a matter of your ability to petition the government. I mean, they're, they're trying to give an $18. You go on Amazon, buy it for 18 bucks, or you can go to the publisher's website and buy it for 50. You're trying to give this book. I mean, there are a lot of books that I'd love legislators to read. If I thought they'd read them, I'd be handing out books all the time if, if the Ethics Commission would let me. But I, I can, you know, there's a difference between giving somebody a book uh, so that they can read it and or hopefully read it and come to view a new perspective around a, an important issue that they're facing as a legislator. If you're giving people like gold-plated books or something like that, you know, that's a different story. This is These are just books. And I think that if you're going to restrict the access, even if it's a lobbyist, if it's a citizen or a lobbyist or, or somebody that's hired a lobbyist, if you're going to restrict their ability to communicate that information in print form to their legislator. It has to be very restricted it has to be very narrowly tailored there has to be no less restrictive means to do that and we see with the, these other arbitrary rules like you know not birthdays but anniversary it's not narrowly it's kind of like it's not, not a book but we can give them an annual report that might have cost yeah. more than ten dollars yeah. uh, for for you know many annual reports that are now created that are that are done in a way to not only just give the the kind of the bottom line for the year but to to but to educate uh, the the reader as to the bigger picture of who they are what they're all about and what their vision is for the future so, right but I'm going to kind of take a devil's advocate on this because because if they do they have to put a limit they have to put a number amount and say okay 
okay, well, $20 then. That will allow this company to have $18. You're going to have somebody come in and go, I've got a $25 book. I can't give a $25 but book. By the, by the same token, if you disclose what you are doing and you, and, and you have some limit that may be a much higher limit, but uh, it, it, I think at that point, whatever that what, wherever that kind of cap is, mm-hmm. I mean, at least you still have the scrutiny in place. I mean, this is not like uh, these folks don't have to disclose who they've taken to a ball game, who they've right. gone out and had a meal with, a how to. much the yeah. meal was, what restaurant they were at. I mean, we've got a lot of information uh, that, frankly, uh, uh, I think, you know, sometimes, uh, I mean, we can, we're, we're moving a direction that where's the, where's the end going to be? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're, we're moving on the wrong track rather than trying to get all parties to really try to, you know, I think work together. And I think most professionals on both sides, uh, you know, if you really get them into the right atmosphere, I have to believe they're willing to do that. It's just when it goes off the rails, it really goes off the rails. Well, I think that uh, when this works its way through the federal courts, what we're going to see is that a court will say that disclosure requirements are okay. You know, that that's, that's a, that's a narrowly uh, tailored Mm -hmm. restriction on speech or, or condition of political speech, that disclosure uh, you've got you got to disclose who bought the book and how much you paid for it and who you gave it but to. Putting a cap and, on and, it and I think much. really there's very little um, disgust or problem with that across the board. Yeah, I don't I, think I, people have. I think we've come to recognize in this day and age that is part of that is just part of the way business is conducted. But and, you think putting a cap on that? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, there's you know there's a there's a different. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know what that cap would look like. And I think that uh, the cap would need to account for you know some some books are you know thirty forty dollars. Sure, yeah. Now there's and again, there's a, there's a big difference between giving somebody a uh, um, a book about a particular policy issue that they bought uh, at you know their local you know going down to commonplace books and buying a book and giving it to their local legislator. That's a lot different than giving somebody a first edition signed copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, very different. I mean, yeah, it's absolutely. Like absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. 